So here at City Light, uh, we follow the biblical core to spend time in prayer as a church community. Um, and we believe it is such a privilege to be able to fellowship with God through prayer. Um, and this morning, we're going to spend some time praying a prayer of confession. Um, so I think it's quite countercultural to kind of spend time um, confessing and thinking about your failures and brokenness before God. But God's people in the Bible are continually called to confess their sins to him. Um, praying and confessing as a church community, I think, encourages us to owe up to the fact that we don't often love the things that we say that we do or we don't often love God in how we should. Um, and confession of our sin before God also acknowledges our real need for sanctifying grace. Um, though we have been saved by grace, we still sin. Um, in, the, in 1 John, it says, My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Um, so as I read out this kind of prayer of confession, we're asking God to really captivate our hearts and to retrain our minds to be thinking of him and to be kind of kingdom oriented. Um, and I think often we can pray and kind of forget the significance of what's happening as well. Um, so when we pray, we are speaking to our heavenly dad who loves us and delights in us um, and he delights in his children coming before him. Um, so as I pray, I invite you to pray with me, remembering that we are talking to our good Father who loves us deeply. Um, so if you feel comfortable, um, bow your heads and pray with me. Gracious God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed by what we have done and what we've left undone. We confess that we have longed too much for the comforts of this world. We have loved the gifts more than the giver. We have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbours as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Lord, in your mercy, help us to see all the things we pine for as shadows, but you as substance, that they are shifting, but you are an anchor. Lord, we plead your forgiveness on the merits of Jesus Christ. Accept his worthiness for our unworthiness, his sinlessness for our transgressions, his fullness for our emptiness, and Lord, his glory for our shame. For the sake of your son, Jesus, please have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. And Jesus, we pray this in your powerful and mighty name. Amen. Um, we're going to read the Bible now together as well. So we're still in Deuteronomy. Um, and we're reading Deuteronomy 9, verse 1 to 6, if you've got your Bibles with you. Otherwise, it will come up on the screen behind me. So Deuteronomy 9, verse 1. Hear, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have wars up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. 
The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Hey everyone, great to see you. My name is Jacob, if we haven't met before, and if you are here for the first time, I just want to extend my welcome to Anna's, it's great having people join us every single week, and if you're someone here who maybe you're exploring the Christian worldview or you're asking, I guess, questions about life, trying to work it out what it is that you believe or, or whether there's any truth in this, we just hope that today is going to be helpful for you in that journey. Like Anna said, we've been walk- working our way through a part of the Bible called the Book of Deuteronomy for, I think, five or six weeks now. We're going to be going through Deuteronomy all the way up until Christmas. And I've just been enjoying getting into this book and, and seeing what it teaches us about ourselves and, and God and what he's like. Um, before we get into it, I just want to also just kind of echo what Anna said about the men's night tonight. It's going to be great. It was last time um, getting all the guys together and encouraging each other. If you're going to be there, which I hope you will if you're a guy, um, just let us know on the white card. We're having pizzas. want to make sure there's enough pizzas for all the boys. So put it, put it down. If you've got any dietaries as well, we do need to know that just so we can cater for you. But it's going to be a great night. Write on the white cards if you're coming and you haven't already let us know. And we'll see you there tonight. A few years ago, uh, a screenwriter by the name of Harris Whittles, who was involved in writing Parks and Rec, if you've seen that, he also wrote a book called Humble Brag, The Art of False Modesty. And a humble brag is a concept I think most people are pretty familiar with. It's a statement that's set up kind of like formulated in such a way that it would be saying something humble about yourself or even self-deprecating, but in reality it's pointing people's attention to your impressive qualities. And his book was really just a compilation of tweets, from um, real tweets from celebrities, most of whom are in the kind of B-list and C-list variety. And I've just got a, a bit of a sample of these for you now. First one's from Kevin Hart at Kevin Hart for Real. I'm, wa- I'm watching the UCLA and Florida game in amazement because I performed in the same arena where they are playing now and sold out. Hashtag God is good. Now, I think that God is good is meant to be like, look, it's not about me or I don't know. But, but to, make, to make something, it's not about you, it's a, it's a, it's a football game about you, it just kind of just shows this thing. And, and as we say here at City Light every week, the main thing God is on about is filling up Kevin Hart Stadium tours. So that's where the God is good probably really is. Another one here, Hayley Williams, singer who tweeted, when you walk into a bookstore and your face is everywhere and you look a lot better in the pic than you do right now. Hashtag ha ha, hashtag crazy life. <laughs> and again, it's kind of set up kind of be sort of like self-deprecating, but it's really just pointing out like kind of she's wowed by her own self and her own face being all over the place. Um, Will I Am from the Black Eyed Peas. This one's just, just hard to get your head around. He, he tweeted, Christmas shopping today. I haven't been home in three weeks, and now it's Santa I am time. I'm blessed to give better presents than I receive. Like, this is just like, I, Jesus said, you know, the whole idea is it's better to give than to receive, but he's kind of twisted that a little bit to kind of bring down everyone who's given him a present and to say he's better. And then um, a short one from Evan Lysekic, who's a, an Olympic skater. It's just nice and short and sweet. Why do I always get gassy limo drivers? Like, there's probably easier ways to let people know that you kind of roll around in limos than that. So we've, we're probably familiar with these kind, of, these kind of statements. I think the most kind of obvious humble brag is just the, which I think you see a lot more often, is just when someone says that they're humbled by something, but what they really mean is they're really proud of it. When you say, I'm, I'm humbled to get this award, or I've been humbled to, to you know, come and be invited to speak at this event. 
You never see anyone actually writing that they're humbled by anything that is really humbling. You don't see people tweet, I'm humbled that I got fired this week for incompetence, or anything like that. <laughs> so most of us, though, when we see this sort of thing on the internet, we, we see through it, it's kind of a bit cringy, it's kind of whatever, and you know, obviously the internet is just definitely up there with the least humble places. But it reveals, I think, something that we all probably do agree with or feel deep down, is that many people feel that, that the path to validation what having some sense of fulfilled self is not actually through humility, it's through pride. Even if we use words like we're, we're humble, we try to make ourselves look like we're being humble, deep down it feels better to broadcast the best of ourselves than to own up to the worst of us. Humility, which was once regarded as a virtue, is just barely recognized these days. But in the Bible, throughout the whole Bible, humility is held up as one of the greatest virtues. It's one of the characteristics that leads to life to the full. And we're going to get a window into that in the book of Deuteronomy today. And what we're going to see in the book of Deuteronomy, which is going to point us to really the whole kind of story of the Bible, is that the gospel, the good news that we see in the Bible, actually provides an antidote to the kind of pride that corrupts us into having to have our, our best qualities be seen at all costs. It's an antidote to the inclination that we have towards self-righteousness and to actually give us the freedom to receive the mercy that we desperately need. And what we're going to see today is that the road to humility and this, this freeing humility that the gospel offers is found in acknowledging who we really are and in what we're really like. And it's in facing up to our own sinfulness, which isn't a particularly, I guess, um, catchy kind of concept to be looking at. There's a lot of countercultural stuff in what we're going to see today. So I'm just going to pray now as we get into God's word that as we look at what the book of Deuteronomy has to say about humility, that we would actually be transformed into becoming a humble people. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we just look at your word now that Anna just read for us, and as we, um, as we think on it and consider what you are saying and what you've got to say to each one of us, we just ask that you would be transforming us by your word, that you would be freeing us from the, the drive towards a sense of just pride that we, that we find ourselves caught up in so much of the time and that you would make us humble like your son is, that we might actually have the joy that comes with that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Deuteronomy, which we've been looking at for a while, is a series of speeches or, or even sermons by a guy called Moses, uh, and they're given to the people of Israel as they are preparing to enter into the promised land of, of Israel. And this is their second attempt of, of trying to enter it after failing 40 years earlier. And they failed 40 years earlier, not because they tried and it didn't work out, but because they didn't try at all. They didn't trust that God was going to be with them. They didn't trust that God was going to give them this land. And so now Moses is, 40 years later, preparing them to go in again. And he's preparing them not so much for the actual act of going in, but he's preparing them to live the life for the years and decades and centuries that are going to follow as to think about what... What is going to be the good life? What is the life that, what is going to actually be the road to experiencing life to the full in this promised land? And the section that we just read then starts by reminding them of what they're going to do. And we see in here the danger of pride. If you've got your Bibles open, we're going to be working our way through pretty much the whole chapter of chapter 9, but it'll be up on the screen as well, where it begins, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anahim, whom you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? 
Know therefore today that he who goes over before you is a com- as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. You shall drive them out and make them perish quickly, as the Lord has promised you. It's this promise that's it's quite a, a big promise. He's, he's saying to them, you're going to go into this land that's kind of held by the best of the best, these strong people, the sons of Anaheim, which were these kind of people that were almost myth, mythological, kind of perceived as giants, or these impressive, powerful people. And so you're going to take down walls that reach to the sky. You're going to be the victors. You're going to do it. You're going to conquer. And I wonder how you'd kind of feel if you kind of heard that being said about yourself. Or if you can kind of you know, fast forward a bit to when this actually takes place. How, how might you be feeling after having this great victory and conquest? You'd be feeling a bit chuffed in yourself. You'd be feeling like, well, yeah, like we must be it. We're, we're the real deal. If we've beaten the best of the best, we must be pretty good. We must be pretty special. And, and I think we can kind of feel a bit of this. We live in a, in a culture that really values pride and self-celebration, don't we? I was recently at my mum and dad's place looking through kind of the stuff in storage, and I found a box of my old trophies. Now, this isn't a humble brag, because if you know me at all, you'll know that it's a miracle that I have a box of old trophies. <laughs> I, I'm terrible at every sport I've ever, I've ever tried. I remember one season of soccer when I was a kid, our entire team didn't score a single goal the whole season. But we still got a trophy, because in Australia, you get a trophy for anything, because you're worth celebrating. You can just be proud, be proud of your failures, just have a trophy, put it on your shelf, feel good about yourself, even though you've done absolutely nothing. <laughs> we, we hold to pride as being really important, so it's no, I guess it's no surprise that, that Moses is anticipating in them that they would be chuffed up by this, that if they've had this victory, that they would be feeling proud. But what Moses is going to go on to say is that pride isn't the right response for them. He says, don't be so quick to pat yourself on the back. If you read on in verse 4, immediately following what we just read, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or your uprightness of heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. You catch the warning there that, that Moses has given them. He's saying, don't say to yourself after this victory takes place that this must mean that we are really great. Or that it's because of my righteousness or my worthiness or, or goodness or, or perfection that this has happened. He points out, look, that the, one of the reasons this has happened is because the nations who you're defeating, they're actually evil. They've actually kind of had a, a punishment coming to them for some time. And, and, and that, that is their just, um, they're just due. But don't conclude from that 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 must mean that you're particularly great. Don't conclude from that that you, therefore, must be upright of heart. So he says in three times, verse 4, don't say it's because of my righteousness. Verse 5, um, it's not because of your righteousness. And again in verse 6, it's not because of your righteousness. He's saying, don't get puffed up, don't get proud. This has got nothing to do with you. And that's a bit of a dampener, I guess, onto the kind of uplifting victory speech at the very beginning. But he's saying, look, don't look down, even on wicked people, before you've had a chance to examine your own heart. And he goes on then to explain to them a story reminding them of a story that is central to their relationship with God that reveals just how undeserving they really are. And it's the story of what happened at Mount Sinai. 
After being rescued from Egypt um, generations prior, the people of Israel were taken to a place called Mount Sinai, which is where they were to have this kind of this moment formalizing their relationship with God, making this kind of covenant agreement with him. And Moses takes them back in their memory to this moment. In verse 9, as we read, keep reading through the chapter, it says, When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. So he's taken them back in their memories to this big moment, this kind of amazing larger-than-life scene where God appears in fire. He addresses his people from the top of a mountain. He, they get given these, these stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written with the very finger of God. And on these stones are these commands signifying that they are to be a chosen people and holy and special good commands for living life to the full, commands that have them committing to, to not worship anyone before God, to have no other gods before him. It's this glorious moment. And then Moses interrupts that when, by explaining to them that things go pear-shaped. Next verse, verse 12. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go quickly from here, for your people whom you've brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They've turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. He then continues in verse 15. So I turned and came down the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before. Forty days and forty nights I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So you see the contrast here. While God was on this mountaintop affirming his love for his people, they were building a fake God for themselves. They took their gold, their jewelry, their precious metals, boiled it down and built a calf to worship. All the while, while God is addressing them and pouring out his love for them from the mountaintop. And it's a scene that's meant to be outrageous. It's, it's a scandalous thing to have happened. It's so outrageous that Moses breaks these stone tablets and he collapses on a heap on the ground for 40 days and 40 nights because it is hard to overstate just how explicitly sinful this moment is. I'm trying to think of a similar situation. So I just want you to imagine a, a wedding day and gathering in, in a church building, looking up at, at the couple at the front, looking their best, exchanging the rings, saying the I do's, having the first kiss. The, the, just this moment where a relationship's kind of come to its culmination and, and, and these promises are made and, and they're getting ready publicly to begin this new life together. Now imagine then, just after the ceremony, seeing the groom or the bride at the reception sneaking off to the bathroom to sleep with another guest. This is the kind of weighty uh, I guess, memory that Moses is trying to drop for his people. He's saying that that's the kind of people you are. You are like that spouse. 
having an affair at the moment you're meant to be committing yourself to the other person. Now, let me just take that analogy a little bit further. Imagine then that the, 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 cheating, the cheating person is caught by their new spouse, and yet amazingly, their spouse, as heartbroken as they would surely be, at that moment, they don't call off the marriage, they don't take the ring off and throw it on the ground, but through tears, they decide to stick it out and be faithful. How would that memory of, the, of that wedding fit in, the, in that cheating spouse's mind for the rest of their life? It would be the dominant memory of that occasion, right? It wouldn't be when they think of them, their wedding, they're not thinking of the flowers, they're not thinking of the food, they're not thinking of the drinks. They're thinking of the shame of knowing that in that moment they were shown to be unfaithful, a betrayer at the very beginning, and then also just the knowledge of the grace and the mercy of their spouse. If, if that scenario, it's hard to imagine a scenario like that actually coming to be where, where that wouldn't just kind of ruin it then and there. But to imagine, imagine that, that marriage of hopefully growing and healing, the spouse who cheated would be filled, I think, for the rest of their life with a sense of humility, of knowing that any good thing that happened in the marriage from that point on isn't really a result of them, but it's actually a result of the grace and mercy of their spouse who forgave, who showed love even when it wasn't deserved. And this is the mindset that the entire people of Israel are meant to have for the rest of their existence when they think back to, to this moment of, w- of what happened at Mount Sinai. The, the memory that's meant to stand out in their mind isn't just God giving them the commandments up or God appearing in the fights. It's them building an idol right before God. It's meant to be clear to them that any future blessing or any goodness they receive isn't because they are righteous, but because God is merciful, because God holds to his covenant. And you see this in Moses' appeal for them at the end of the chapter. Look at, look at what Moses appeals to God for in, from verse 26 on. He says, And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you've redeemed through your greatness, whom you've brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. Lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out and put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. You see here that Moses isn't saying, look, save them because they're worth it. He's saying, no, God, just remember who you are, that you are faithful, that you are the saving one, that you have made these promises. His appeal is not to them and their righteousness, but on God's character, that God is a merciful God. So the whole point of this section is for the people to remember who they are and because of that to be humble. And this isn't just an ancient Israelite thing that's kind of isolated to them. This, this dynamic is, plays itself out throughout the entire Bible, all the way through to the New Testament, all the way through to Jesus' teaching as to how we're li- to live today. So I want to jump out of Deuteronomy now, and I want to jump ahead to the New Testament, to um, the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the accounts of Jesus' life and teachings, where Jesus tells a, a, like a short story or a parable to highlight this truth for us today. And this is what he says. Luke 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So what we see here is who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to a people who, like the Israelites, maybe are prone to think too highly of themselves. 
to look down on others to say, I'm great and they're the problem over there. And this is the story he tells in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. It's the humble brag. We should be like trained to see that now, right? He's, it's, a, it's a prayer that is set up to be like, thank you, God, for how good you are. But other than those first couple of words, everything else he says is pointed back at himself, isn't it? He's saying, I'm not like him. I'm not immoral. He's, he's guilty. He's bad. I'm amazing. Thank you that I'm so, so fantastic. But then the next man, verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector, he knows that he's guilty. He knows that he's robbed people. He knows that he's immoral. But he prays from his weakness. And then Jesus concludes in these amazing words in verse 14, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There are two postures you can take when you come before God. It's either look at me, I'm better than them, uh, if only these other people were more like me, or it's God have mercy on me, a sinner. This is really countercultural in this self-celebratory world that we live in, where we're just so trained to want to point to our righteousness, to point to our achievements. But we see here that what we're actually meant to point to is our brokenness and our sin. We're meant to point to, before God, the tendency we each have to make a mess of our own lives, the tendency we have to worship things other than God with the worship that only He deserves to replace him with idols, maybe not like a golden calf, but ourself or another person or our career or money or whatever it is. The tendency to, to further ourselves and make our lives better by doing things that sometimes we know are wrong. It's the inability to consistently do what is right. It's our tendency to even hurt those around us, even, even the people that we love the most. And we're meant to reflect on ourselves in this way when we come before God and say, God, look at this. I'm a mess. So we've got nothing left to say but have mercy. And the amazing truth is that in doing that, you actually receive mercy. That's how you get justified. That is how God looks at you and says, no, you know what? You're okay. Jesus says that reflecting on our sin is, is, is kind of non-intuitive as, as it sounds. is good for us in two ways. And the first of these is just humility. This is what we've been talking about. I want you just to draw to mind for a moment the type of person that you find yourself looking down on. Maybe it's because of how they think on a certain topic that's different to how you think. Maybe something you're passionate about that they just don't see. Maybe it's something that they believe that you don't believe or something that they don't believe that you believe. Maybe it's because they don't do something that you've decided is really important and you put a lot of effort into and you make a real big effort in this area but they don't do it until you think they're the problem. And when we, when we think of these people, I think w what is often behind that is this idea that wouldn't the world be better if they were more like me? If they were accepting like me or progressive like me or conservative like me or committed to church like me or outward looking like me or generous like me or self-controlled like me or smart like me, whatever it is, we, we look at people and say, the answer is for them to be more like me. But when we face our sin we realize that the solution to the problems we surround us isn't that people become more like us, is it? 
Because we're flawed, we're sinful. When I reflect on, on who I really am, I quickly realize that having more people like me would not be that good a thing at all. The gospel destroys pride. It destroys self-righteousness because you can't look down on other people when you realize that you're at the bottom. What you can do, though, is you can start actually empathizing with people. Not to downplay their flaws or to downplay their brokenness, but to right-size yourself and, and to recognize that when you look at a person who is broken and sinful, you are broken and sinful yourself. It promotes humility. We want to be humble people. But the other thing that reflecting on our sin does for us is it doesn't just make us humble, it also makes us grateful. There's this real irony in this prayer that the Pharisee prays where he begins his prayer with, thank you, God, but he's not thankful at all. He's entitled. He believes he deserves every good thing he's got. But the tax collector who stands off to the side doesn't think he deserves anything at all. He doesn't even think he deserves the right to go and stand before God. He receives justification. He receives mercy. And this is the upside-down logic of Christianity, that the one who is aware for their need for mercy is the one who receives it. Both these men need mercy, but only one recognizes their need. And it's in receiving something that is completely undeserved that gives rise to gratitude. This is the message of the gospel. But our confidence isn't in ourselves or our own righteousness or our own efforts or our own goodness, but it's in God's love. That he showed his love for us when Jesus died on the cross in our place. And that's why healthily reflecting on our sin shouldn't lead us to be people who are self-loathing or insecure or have low self-esteem. But it should actually lead us to be just filled with a sense of actual peace about who we are. Because in the gospel, we can say truthfully that I'm a sinner and I'm broken, but we can also say truthfully that I'm loved, that I'm cherished, that I'm protected, that I'm bought at a price and I've been shown mercy. And that should lead to a profound gratitude. Now, I think the world really needs more Christians who are grounded in this reality. There are plenty of people walking around this earth under the banner of Jesus who are looking down on people around them who are entitled, who feel like they're better than everyone else. I don't think that's true of the people in this room. I think one of the reasons that City Light is a place where people love to be is because there's a lot of gratitude in this room and there's a lot of humility in this room. This is what Sydney needs more. It needs people who are, who are confidently humble, secure and grateful in the knowledge that God has saved them because he is a good and loving God. So I want to encourage you today towards... Are you making it more of a practice to be open about your own sinfulness and brokenness? To actually practice it? Because it's counterintuitive. I think this is maybe just two ways that you might want to think about growing in this area. The first is in our Studio Light communities. Um, if anyone who doesn't know, we, we meet all together in a big group here on a Sunday, but through the week we meet in different people's homes and we have a meal and we share our lives. And they are a context in which to practice being real to actually not having to come in with a facade and say, here's why I'm great, here's all my achievements, here's what I'm doing right, but to have a place where you can, before the people, maybe in, in a way you've never done before, say, here's where I'm in need, here's where I've stuffed up, here's where I've made mistakes, here's where I've made mistakes even this week, here's where I'm broken. And to kind of do that, not in a context where you're going to be judged for it or kind of looked down upon, but where you're going to be lifted up, where you're going to be pointed to, to remember and recognize Jesus' love for you. 
his mercy and his faithfulness. That in doing that, we actually cultivate in ourselves and in each other a real humility that we need to be growing in and a gratitude. So when it comes time in groups, when there's opportunities to be, to be real and to be open and to share your lives, I encourage you to take those opportunities to be pointed to God's grace once again. But another area would just be on your own in your prayer life. Especially if you're someone who prays, but most of your prayers seem to be taken up with asking God for things. The things that are on your mind that you'd like to have or to see change or to, or to have go on. To do like we did at the beginning of this service, to just spend some time in prayer, not asking God for anything, but just reflecting on your own brokenness. Confessing. Informing God of, although he already knows, how you've fallen short in the last week so that you would be reminded that he has covered that, that he has forgiven. And just see what that does for your humility and your gratitude. Often we can get ungrateful when just asking God for lists of stuff, and if that doesn't happen, then we just get ungrateful. But if we're spending time confessing our fallenness and recognizing God's mercy for us, that makes us a humble and a grateful people. So in a minute, I'm just going to give some time just to reflect on that. I'm going to pray in a moment, and then the band's going to come up. We're going to sing. We're going to be singing songs that reflect on this truth. I think the first one that we're going to sing straight after this, the the first line is, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But as we sing, I just encourage you just to be reminding yourself of that reality in that. To be even, you could even use these times in song as an opportunity to confess to God your need for him. Um, And to rejoice and to experience a genuine gratitude in song. But right now I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing together in a moment. Heavenly Father, I just want to just thank you for your word and just this reminder that it is not because of our righteousness or our perfection or our goodness that we are saved, but it is in you. It is in your mercy. It is in what has been achieved for us when Jesus died in our place. And Lord, we just ask that you would just be helping us rest in that reality. That we would be freed from the need just to make ourselves look good or to pretend that we are better than we are, but to be humble people, not looking down on those around us, but recognizing that we um, we're saved by your grace and your grace alone. We just pray you be cultivating that deep sense in each of us, even in this time as we reflect on you in song. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.